how do you inspire, encourage, and foment genuine belief? It's not by pointing people back to their works, but by pointing people to what Jesus has done on their behalf, which is exactly what infant baptism in particular signifies. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today, as always, with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys? Wonderful. Great, Nick. Yeah, doing well. So come clean. Which one of you set up that phony Foley Beach Instagram account? What? Have you not heard about this? I'm not even on Insta, no. Oh, man, he's had to, like, record an Instagram video repudiating some fake Foley Beach account that's asking for money. Oh, really? This is how you know you've made it. Our our archbishop has made it. Is it on behalf of one of his deceased relatives in Africa that's uh, that's (laughs) just run across his uh, fortune? I haven't seen it. Have you, Nick? I'm not not hip with all the kids these days. I just saw that the ACNA had shared it. Um, it's Foley Beach with an extra H at the end. If you're curious, you can hmm. you can look up the fake Foley on Instagram. <laughs> fake Foley on Insta. <laughs> but but be sure to actually follow the real Archbishop Foley Beach with only one H. I tried Gosh. Instagram for a minute. I couldn't figure out exactly. I mean, I understand how people do it, but but I didn't see. I kept wanting to use it like Twitter, and then it's like no, it's more pictures. But then I don't yeah. know the stories and. I mean, we're not hip enough. We should really have like a clubhouse or um, TikTok or something. You know, maybe people would. Didn't uh, clubhouse fizzle? Didn't that like not? Well, I think Twitter has like a version of it now. Yeah. Where you can have a conversation. So mm-hmm. um, it may have just gotten bought by one of these people. But right, right. Yeah, if our listener wants us to be on video, just let no. us know because. Um, I've got a radio Nick, face. Well, you could go behind a, you could, uh, (laughs) you could change your voice, (laughs) Uh, but we could do, uh, you could have an avatar. You could have like a, like a little cartoon figure of you. Gorillas. Yeah. Like an animated (laughs) figure. All right. Well, let's get into what we're going to talk about this week. Um, So as you guys and our listener may know, I serve parish here in Louisville, Kentucky, which is also the home of the Southern Baptist Theological Theological seminary. That means that I cross paths with Baptists a lot. Some of them when they're trying out Grace Church, some of them email me out of curiosity, and some of them, well, some of them, not many, but some view me as in flagrant violation of a biblical mandate. But in the end, I always get asked a version of the same question. Why do you all baptize babies? Now, I have my standard talking points, but I thought I'd give you guys a chance to share some of your wisdom, too. In the course of this conversation, I'm sure we'll talk scripture, theology, church history, and more, but let's begin in the most broad way possible. Matt and J.D., why do you all baptize babies? If I'm not mistaken, I think we might at this point, this might be one of the fun episodes where we disagree with one another and and crash just a bit. I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I baptize babies because uh, because I think that when you look at the the whole scope and uh, trajectory of biblical revelation, you find, for example, or not for example, first of first of all, that from the eighth day, young Israelite babies were included in the old covenant, um, baby boys um, through the the sacrament. 
I would say it was an Old Testament sacrament of circumcision and brought into the covenant body of Israel and therefore were able to uh, both partake of the Passover and other feasts, be considered an Israelite and hear the word of God and, and sit under the law. And I, I, I don't think that uh, in the new covenant that, that the law lines would be drawn narrower. Um, I think that, that you would have a more expansive demarcation and, and so I, I don't think that, um, I, I, I think that if, the, if in the new covenant, we were not supposed to be baptizing our babies, there would have to be something very clear. There'd be something very, very explicit in the new Testament saying, don't do that. Because if I'm a Jew and I'm sitting in the crowd, standing in the crowd on Pentecost day, and I hear Peter get up and say, um, this promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children. Repent, believe the gospel, and be baptized. This promise for you, for your children, your children. That's that's covenant language. I would go right back to Abraham and, and Genesis 17 and think about the covenant of circumcision. And so, unless I'm stopped, I'm going to baptize my baby. I'm getting baptized. I'm baptizing my baby. I'm getting my my whole household baptized. And there's just nothing in the New Testament suggesting otherwise. Uh, not a single thing. And so, while there's not an explicit command to baptize babies, I think that the the weight of Biblical evidence is for the baptism of everybody who belongs to the the household who's under under a certain age. So so I you know you look at the the early church too. You don't you know you know, I think the first sign of any kind of controversy is with Tertullian in the, in the third century, um, who is arguing that we shouldn't be baptizing babies, which means that that the church has been has been baptizing babies so uh, i guess this is a long answer i mean probably if i sit down i have, I have a lot of actual actual baptists in my church um, who disagree with me about this um so when i'm sitting down with them maybe i wouldn't rehearse it this in this in this length but uh but essentially the the, the answer to that question is that i think that god has established this new covenant as he says through peter in acts chapter two for you and for your children and, and so, of course, you're going to bring them into that through the sacrament, which initiates them into the visible, visible body of Christ. Yeah, I don't um, disagree with that at all, Matt. Um, I mean, I, I disagree with how long and boring it was, but I don't <laughs> disagree with that. I think I, <laughs> I, I disagree with it. I take great offense. No, but, but I, what I would want preach. to start with, what I would want to start with, um, First of all, is is a repudiation of the idea that somehow it is clearly biblical to either baptize uh, adult confessing believers or it's clearly, quote unquote, biblical to baptize children, because I think there is an ambiguity um, on both of those uh, sort of counts. As you referenced, Matt, it's not explicitly prohibited, but it's also not explicitly uh, commended, um, go therefore and baptize, including your children, you know, the nations and teach them everything I have taught you. I mean, Jesus, uh, you know, and so I think one of the first places to begin, particularly in my conversations in Louisville with, uh, with people at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and other and elsewhere was to, at the very least, uh, have to come to an agreement, if we're going to have this discussion, that there is not, one is not a uh, more biblical position than the other. There is an ambiguity to it that requires um, a larger, we should even say, systematic appreciation of uh, the concept of baptism, the nature of the covenant, the way of God's dealing with people, the purpose of baptism. These are these are questions that go beyond, quote unquote, just the text. It doesn't mean that we don't rely on the text and the Bible's not our authority on it, but 
But what I've run, what I've run into my entire adult life is I've discussed um, this question with people who who just flat out reject the concept of infant baptism is, first of all, this idea that somehow we are um, simply relying on tradition as opposed to what the Bible clearly says. And I've had this conversation with people. Well, you Anglicans, you know, uh, baptize baby, but babies, but we just believe the Bible. Like, that's what we do. And then nothing makes me more frustrated as a Bible-believing Christian pastor than having to hear that because it's a, it's a clearly an objectifiably falsifiable, falsifiable uh, assertion. I mean, I have my LCMS friends, um, of course, my Presbyterian friends, my Anglican friends, you know, who have devoted their entire lives to submission to the authority of Scripture and would would rightfully um, argue for its inerrancy and availability and authority in every aspect of our lives, um, who would take great offense to the, to the simplistic assertion that somehow this is not a biblical concept. So that'd be my first place, because if you can actually set the terms of the debate uh, along those lines, well, then it's a much more interesting conversation. But I've really had a hard time getting to a conversational point with many people um, to acknowledge that there is a um, actual, at the very least, an ambiguity. I mean, you can go to First Peter where he says, this baptism now saves you, not as an appeal to a, a you know, clean, uh, not, not as an outward washing with water, but as an appeal to a clean conscience. You can actually quote the Bible saying, this baptism now saves you, at the very least, and say, well, um, you know, how does that operate you know how does this work and then in and and still there's a reluctance which i have again we should talk about it more but but i'm i'm convinced now having argued this some 20 years uh and going that um the systematic concerns surrounding infant baptism most notably the question and the uh place of human volition i.e the will with respect to salvation is actually what's at play when it comes to the majority of the people rejecting infant baptism, um, you know, we could bracket our Reformed Baptists out on another side, but but um, but that's that that's that's sort of where I would begin the conversation. I don't know if that's been your experience, Nick, but but I have had a harder time even getting to a exegetical discussion of uh, infant baptism because so few people with whom I've had this conversation are willing to cede the ground to me that perhaps the position is biblically warranted. It's interesting to hear Matt go to Acts 2, because I feel like in a significant number of the conversations I have, that's the very place where Baptist people go because of Peter's formulation of repent and be baptized. They say that by definition excludes infants because they can't repent. What do you all say to that? Well, I mean, I think uh, the reading into that into that formulation, a sequence necessarily. I mean, I, the, the, I don't know that, that Peter intended um, to be laying down a a repent and then be baptized, and if you haven't repented, you don't you're not baptized. I don't think that's what his his, his point was. So he was talking he was talking to people who needed to repent. He was spe- right. he was speaking to a whole whole crowd of people who many of whom were probably in the crowd screaming for Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's actually what cut them to the heart, right? And certainly none of them um, were Christians. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> right, right. So so he they, need, they, of course, needed to repent. But the question is, what is the, the second part of that, which is, which is this promise is for you and for your children? What's the, what's the promise? And I think the promise is the thing signified by the baptism. And so, and so yeah, I mean, the children didn't need to repent of that particular thing they they could be but they could be initiated into the 
into the covenant through the covenant sign of, of, of baptism. And again, I don't, I, I think you would have had to be far more specific than that. I think, I think Peter would have said, Oh no, wait, wait, are you guys thinking about baptizing your kids? Don't do that. This is a new covenant. The old covenant, you circumcise your, your boys, new covenant, none of that. You wait till your kids are above the age of whatever uh, age of uh, responsibility. I forget what the Baptists call it, but um, 12 or whatever the age is age of 12 <laughs> then, then then they can then they can age of accountability is it accountability age is that what you said well, no, i think that's a, that's that's a wonderful is, yeah. i think yeah. that's a wonderful uh place to begin and and a really good insight matt that i th- i hope would help people who do want to be biblical is that the great question of the continuity and discontinuity between the quote-unquote testaments you know um is really at the, the one of the questions here because to what extent did god alter his interaction with his people you know one obviously it was dramatically altered through christ but but how much so it wasn't entirely discontinuous which is the whole book of hebrews you know it was a fulfillment of the promise and so the types and shadows that were have now been finally realized and so if if that serves as a broad brush um sort of hermeneutic as it were within what were the problems that the old testament um israelites and jews had to had to face that circumcision was part of the um development and as it were the pedagogy of the covenant for their children and children's children what are the what are the analogies between that and the new the new covenant with respect to baptism and so what i would argue is that just as circumcision inaugurated people into this covenant life, you know, this foreign world within the world uh, that had a different language, God, um, and and direction, you know, teleos, for lack of a better word, um, that the inaugurative function of that, the mark of it, the promise of it, the uh, anchor, you know, however, whatever you want to say, that circumcision was, was transferred over to baptism in some different ways obviously the 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 the, um object christ's death was not part of circumcision explicitly and, and so on and so forth but the the means of it and the reasons for it remain the same namely that you take as early as you can a child in this world and yet not of it or or any more from it or or however you want to use the language jesus just used to pilot but you take a child and you you inaugurate them into the new covenant where god is known um, sin is explicated, uh, repentance is promised, salvation is secured, and you raise them in this world from as early as you possibly can, uh, as I often use in my baptism teaching, uh, with a new language. You know, Christian people, because of their baptism, speak about God, um, not as unknown, but known, speak about ourselves, not as perfect, but sinners, speak about the world, not as hopeless, but hopeful. I mean, and down the line, and that's a language that is picked up um, before we can speak, in just as a normal language is, and it is uh, it is built upon for the entirety of the life of the believer. Now, so the purpose of baptism is inauguration, but it's also sustaining that faith because, as Luther uh, famously said, you know, Christian wakes up daily and is uh, reminded of their baptism. And that's because you're reminded that this death that lies before you has actually already been endured by Christ. This is chapter six, Romans chapter six, you know, the death that we now live, you know, we who have been baptized into a death like his, aren't we certain that we can also be raised in a new life like his, that this baptism symbolizes and, and secures that just as he died, so will we die. And yet just as he has been raised, so will we be raised. And that's simply 
rinse, wash, repeat for your entire life. I mean, that's that's why I baptize babies in part, not simply because I think it's in fitting with the biblical pattern of inauguration into the covenant and the pedagogical securing of the promise and the life of the believer as early as possible. But beyond that, it's because it actually situates the person with respect to God in the proper way, which is that that we have been grafted in to a family and to a people, not by our own will, but by his providential hand before we could ever have, have imagined that he gave us this gift and we can rely on that gift, not on our own strength, but his until, until we finally meet face to face. I mean, that's, that's what baptism is. And so to turn it into, to turn it into a um, mark of your own profession, into a, into a uh, function of your own will, which is what a sort of classical Baptistic, kind of Arminian Baptistic um, uh, idea is to actually, in my opinion, eviscerate the entire thing of its intended purpose, which is at the very point where you need to be reminded, you know, to, at your, when, when you're a, a son in the middle of the pig pods, right? When you're a, the public, I mean, the tax collector, you know, hiding your face from God, like when you're the, when you're the St. Dissimus on the cross, you know, when, when you're at the point where you great most greatly need the security of the promise of God outside of you and for you, which is what baptism signifies. If it were up to you, that's when it lets you down because you say, well, maybe I'm not a son. Maybe I'm not a forgiven. Maybe I'm not going to see him in paradise. Maybe he has forgotten me. And in fact, the pattern of of baptizing infants into the covenant um, is intended to uh, counteract that very point of despair um, whenever it occurs. And and to, to flip it on the other side turns baptism into, well, as you've probably seen, into a work that ultimately, as all works do, promise life but give death. And so you begin to say, well, I've been, I, I believed when I was 16, but I'm in, now I'm not sure, but I knew I was baptized then. Maybe I was really a Christian back then, but not now, you know, or maybe I was, maybe it didn't take, maybe I should get it done again, or maybe the person who did it wasn't right, or maybe, maybe I should just do it every other day, or maybe, maybe just maybe none of it means anything at all. And that's the tragedy, the promise of the, of the, the that promised life, but ultimately proved death. And I think, um, you know, it's not surprising to me that so many of these quote unquote evangelicals that we run across uh, have grown up in Baptistic circles. I mean, I'm not saying that, that that's always the problem, but it's, it seems to me that there's a, there's a flaw um, in the system that uh, ultimately perpetuates doubt, fear, anxiety, and ultimately unbelief. And that's what we're, that's what we're, that's what we're fighting with infant baptism. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk to some, some people who are coming out of that world or or still in that world, they'll they'll talk about, okay, well, what is, you know, isn't baptism kind of a public profession of your, of your trust, a public profession of your, of your, of your allegiance to, to Jesus. And, and so that, you know, you can't, then it doesn't make sense if that's what baptism is to perform that right on babies. And that the, Kind of what you were saying a minute ago, Nick. The babies can't are repenting, so why should they be baptizing? But, but you know, if you think about what circumcision represented, over and over again, you have Moses and the prophets saying, you know, circumcise your heart. Your heart should be circumcised, not just your your flesh. Deuteronomy ten that that's actually given as a command: circumcise your heart. What what what? Same straight. A baby, yeah. by the same reasoning couldn't circumcise his heart. <laughs> That's right. So so and yet 
circumcision was a sign that was given to a baby, to a, to a, an eight-day-old eight-day-old child. So, so if the, the same argument that you might use as a Baptist against infant baptism could have been used against against infant circumcision in the old uh, under the old covenant, if we're if it weren't for the fact that God said, "Hey, circumcise <laughs> circumcise these babies." Uh, so it's just, it's, it doesn't work. You have the same kind of dichotomy in the Old Testament that, that I think exists in the New Testament, that, yes. that, that the, what the sign signifies doesn't mean necessarily that the person has that thing when you baptize him, um, but it does signify that thing still. It's worth mentioning, I think, that the Baptistic people that I talk to are at pains to say that they're not thinking of baptism as a work, or like you referred to earlier, Katie, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to reproduce what they say exactly. Y'all can probably help me, but they would actually claim that the way we do it is more like a work, as you said, you know, quoting that piece of scripture from St. Peter, where he says, baptism therefore saves you. That sounds like a work you can do to get saved, whereas they want to say, salvation is by faith alone, and therefore baptism must be separated from it altogether, and it is more... I think like what you were saying, Matt, a, a sort of a public profession of something that's true within. So I, I wonder if we want to talk about theology for a moment. So nobody would want to say that it's a work, but how can we talk about it in a way that makes it clear that it isn't? Right. Well, can I say something real quick about the people that, at least if you're talking to the same type people that we were all talking to in Louisville, <laughs> one of the one of the reasons the conversation can actually be somewhat fruitful is because from a Reformed Baptist perspective, you know, the one that leans more, uh, that appreciates the sovereignty of God and is not explicitly Arminian meaning. We talked about all this before, and our listener by now should know some of these phrases. But um, <laughs> the fact that, that most of the people coming to at least Southern Seminary there in Louisville um, are, are at least implicitly Reformed, meaning that they... Um, they do believe that God is sovereignly um, in charge of salvation, then it does, the conversation does take a different turn because they're not explicitly saying, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. Like that's not often sung at Boyce Chapel, if ever. I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, like Charles Finney is not welcomed at, um, at, to, to lecture at SBTS. But um, nevertheless, you know, this is where we would say the function and purpose, or at least Matt, I'd be interested in your point, the function and purpose of baptism from a Reformed Baptist perspective, as far as I can tell, is almost exclusively about church membership um, and public profession, which is not a, it's not, these aren't bad things to emphasize, you know, church discipline, church membership, um, public profession, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's a lot to be said for that. I, I personally think that they're tying it to the wrong, um, what they would call ordinance, we would call sacrament, because I think that whatever discussion you want to have about church membership and public profession and what that all implies as a Christian, I don't think that that is what you should tie to the sacrament of baptism, because what I would say is that the, is that baptism is the foundation of the Christian life from which you could then have some interesting conversations about uh, relative value of, of strict or, or lax church discipline, uh, the role of church membership. You know, these are all problems that, particularly coming from the Episcopal churches, we have, uh, we, we are painfully aware of where they don't exist. Um, things can go haywire. But nevertheless, I think that uh, to put the, to conflate all of these issues around baptism is um, 
well, I don't think it's scripturally warranted, but I certainly don't think it's it's uh, theologically warranted warranted either, given the the foundational emphasis on baptism with respect to the promise, to the covenant, to faith, to salvation, over against the outworking of church polity and church discipline. However important that is, it still is a secondary issue in my estimation, and therefore that's why I'm not a Baptist. I mean, that's just frankly why one of the reasons why, uh, as much as the respect I have for the Reformed Baptists, and in, in many ways, um, doctrinal and theological agreement, um, you know, and almost down the list, this is where it comes to a point where I say, well, we have dramatically different understandings of baptism at this point, which then emanate in an entirely different polity, ecclesiology, um, and as it were, sort of outworking, um, horizontal outworking of the role and function of the church within the life of the believer. Um, and the, I don't know, what do you think, Matt? Well, I mean, I, I mentioned at the beginning, this is this may be one of those areas where we disagree. And I don't know, I think last time we talked about this, we did have some some disagreements. And the, our disagreement doesn't surround the the win. I think we both agree, you know, babies, be baptized, <laughs> yes. um, and, and, uh, or, or new converts, of course, right. um, adult converts. Uh, but the, the what, what happens? What, what does it do? I think that's, that's, where, that's where the conversation might have some divergence. So I... I um maybe maybe not maybe maybe you've come around to let's the right hope so that <laughs> that's right thinking now so um, <laughs> Could be. so I I do I do think I mean I think our article on baptism says that it, it is an initiatory right that it that it does it is the sign by which someone's brought into the church so I think it does have that that function to it um, and that always has that function to it I mean whether whether someone is actually a believer or not. Whether someone is is a false professor or a true professor, baptism brings that person into the the external visible body of the church, um, and subjects that person to the discipline of the church. Also, admits that person to the to the sacraments of the church. Um, we would hope, of course, that anyone baptized as an adult would have true and genuine faith. Um, but I think at the very bare minimum, what we say baptism is is the initiatory right to bring bring someone into uh, into the visible the visible body of the church. So about the invisible body, I tend to take, I, I tend to fall on, you know, Packer's line, Ryle's, Ryle's line here, that yes, we baptize babies and bring them into the, the visible body of Christ. It is by faith, however, that sacraments are received in, a, in, a, in, a, in an invisible and personal way. So, so the, the saving benefit of baptism would be received when a child or an adult uh, trust in in Christ, and apart from that, the the saving benefit of it isn't or, or can be present because all, all all of our sacraments are received by faith. What God offers objectively is received subjectively by um, by trusting in Him. Now, can a baby have faith? Of course. I mean, it was uh, uh, John the Baptist had faith at six months after his conception. I wanted so to I'm not saying. Up. <laughs> so I'm not saying that, that you have to be eight to your you're twelve, you're twelve or whatever whatever age the Baptist say you have to be, but um, but I do think that the the way baptism is received is by faith. Can God in the in the sacrament of baptism uh, regenerate a child and bring that person to faith at that moment? Like the Lutherans would say, happens every time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Does he always? I I don't think he does always. So, and, and the reason I don't think he does always is because I believe that God who begins a good work in you will bring it to fruition. And if he has brought, um, if he has 
if, if baptism by necessity necessarily brings spiritual regeneration, spiritual rebirth, as opposed to uh, regeneration in the sense of being brought into the church, then that's a good work. The God began in someone. Um, and then is he just not going to bring that to fruition? Is he just going to let that die? Let the person go to hell? I would say no. That's why I, that's why I would say the way to receive baptism and its saving efficacy is is by is by faith. Well, I don't know what you would I don't know who would disagree with that exactly. Um I'm I'm still trying to figure out I'm not trying to figure out I'm thinking I you know said. I disagree with you. I'm trying no, to no, figure no. out how. Well, I I'm, nothing you said prompted this question, although maybe that would be maybe you'll react to it and maybe that's what I'm hearing. But I I wonder when I have conversations with some people, what what I want to ask them is what would be the problem? I'm not arguing this, but let's just say that everybody that got baptized is saved. Like what what is your problem with that? Given just the, the fact that Peter says, um, Jesus says baptize, Peter says baptism saves you. Uh, Paul talks about baptism as a grafting into Christ's death. And let's just say that that God, the promise in 9 through 12 that was signified by the uh, covenantal circumcision to the Israelites would, did not fail despite their, their seeming rejection of Christ, which is sort of the whole argument of 9, 10, 11 in Romans. Let's say that it does, in fact, direct, have direct analogies to circumcision, and God disciplines, chastises, and in fact allows for calamity and wrath to occur, nevertheless, as a good father disciplining his children and does not let his promise fail. So if baptism represents that in the same way, then what's the problem, theoretically, with the fact that it could possibly simply be that easy? That, that, that Do you demanding- think... I'm not, I'm not, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I don't necessarily I, I agree with I'm, that. I'm, I'm asking a question to the devil. Um, do you think <laughs> devil's you, advocate to the devil? That's right. Do you, do you think that all those circumcised were also saved? And well, it, I don't know. Certainly. I don't know, but I know if I'm with Paul, Paul, it's my hope. And it would that my own salvation were cut off for the sake of my brethren. I mean, I know that he doesn't seem to, to consider that, but it's certainly, it certainly seems that that would be what he had hoped, um, or at least that's the argument. I mean, he's wrestling with the, the question. I there. think, I mean, my, my reason I says it, it seems to me that he would say no, because he, he makes that clear, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about those who died in the desert, even though they passed through the water and the, and the clouds, and they didn't do them any good because they didn't have faith, right? <laughs> that was a problem. They weren't genuine. Um, and and then he's, the, the, the issue in Romans 9, he's answering the question, Romans 9 through 11, He's he's answering that question. Does it has the have the promises of God right, gone, failed. failed? And no, because there's the remnant of a of the, the, there's a true Israel. Right. The the, the true circumcision, those who yes. actually believe in Jesus, not the false circumcision, those who don't believe in Jesus. So it's right. not the sign that produced the faith or produced the regeneration. It's the it's the the people who believed who actually were really genuinely circumcised. Right. In so this side, but this side right. of heaven, this side of heaven with our limited sight, um, do you want to arbitrate um, who really has faith um, or who? No, who I mean, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy to say that lots more people have faith than we would know. We would right. Notice. And so what do we then hold on to as a respect to why would we have any hope at all in burying someone who is otherwise unregenerate this side of heaven? I would suggest that if they've been baptized, at the very least, we have something 
um, scriptural, hopeful, and uh, to hold, to hang our, as it were, uh, sermon on. And that's another reason why I think, um, again, not that not that I would argue, because I don't think it would make any sense whether I argued or not, that everyone that gets sa- baptized is saved any more than it would say to argue that every Israelite circumcised, every per, you know, every Israelite circumcised was was um, part of the covenant. I mean, that's you know, clearly that's not the case. And yet, on an individual person by person basis, uh, one of the difficulties in church history, and one of the ones that often comes back up when having discussions with people rejecting infant baptism, is that they seem to have a clear conception of who baptism has worked for and hasn't worked for. And I personally am less confident in making that assertion. You know, one of the arguments um, often given is that, well, so-and-so was baptized and look at their lives and look at, you know, they're, they're an unbeliever now. And I say, well, that's an easy one. You know, that's an easy, that's an easy one to point to. Although I don't know about you, but I've met people who have been unbelievers up until their 87th year of life. And then lo and behold, upon further consideration of their, of their imminent demise, it seemed to have a change of heart. Now, is that a result of their baptism? I'm not, uh, not necessarily, but had they been baptized, it's not, it's not objectifiably false to say that the baptism ultimately took fruit in their lives. And so if you're meeting a 65-year-old who got baptized and is an atheist, you better pray and perhaps even be confident, shock and all, that maybe on their 87th year, um, something of that seed that was planted um, those many years ago might actually uh, bear fruit. And again, I'm not necessarily um, saying that, that there's no normative pattern for this is what I'm arguing, except for the fact that if you allow for baptism as a sign of the covenant that has been done to you that you did not choose, that is making an assertion about you and God that you cannot, uh, you can refute, but you cannot deny that the assertion has been made, well, then it becomes a fulcrum or, or a leverage point in your life for the rest of your life that um, you can be reminded of, turn back to, it can be an annoyance, you know, this 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 incredible energy around de-baptism, have you seen this? That's part of the power of the Holy Spirit is that, you know, people aren't de people people are incredibly energized by needing to refute that which is objectively true i.e god and so um you know part all of that is part of the part of the water part of the appropriately pun intended of baptism and where you have a confidence not in the act but in god and then the belief that the means and gifts of grace are given to the church to to administer um then it becomes a sermon a constant sermon like a like tinnitus in your soul the fact that you've been baptized well i'm not bad you know you did that grandma you only did that because grandma was going to withhold the the money dad and now i live in new zealand and i'm part of some sort of you know buddhist yoga cult or whatever it's like well sweetheart i know you think that's the final word on things but we've already had that secured because we gave you to jesus and he marked you as his own forever you know well i don't believe it dad well i'm going to keep saying that and we're going to and it's done and it's been done and that's the promise that we're holding on to not that there was some magic done but that god is actually sovereign and gave you these children to raise up in the his fear and admonition and as proverbs what is it 24 says you know raise a child of the way he should go when he's old he will not depart from me well we're not sure how old that is but that's the hope and promise that that baptism holds out and um we're going to keep doing it do do you um I mean, I agree with a lot of that. Do you, do you, do you think that, um, 
do you think it's possible for a genuine believer to fall away from the faith? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, again, I think it's somewhat of an abstraction. And again, and again I'm not. I don't it is an abstraction because you. Well, look, the reason reason I'm asking that is because you you wanted to focus on like me for being sure. the judge of individual souls, and I can't for do sure. that. But for the question sure. about the, the larger question we're, we're kind of circling around is yes, is, so is it possible for a genuine believer right right to lose his or her faith and, um, and, and I don't become think- apostate. So I don't think that it, in the final analysis, I mean, this is where, so let me back up. So Luther in his Genesis commentary addresses this conversation that was, he heard going on amongst the, um, I don't know what he calls them, wasn't the reform, but he said, some people among you are worried about essentially what we would call perseverance of the saints, you know, final salvation and whether or not you could lose it. And um, I think that, like, for instance, the doctrines of grace, tulip, represented by tulip, I think even to a certain degree, limited atonement, which I know is like the, you know, third rail and all. And I'm sure Jordan Cooper doesn't listen to our podcast when all my Lutheran friends ahead just exploded, you know, like this idea. But I think it makes sense theoretically, you know, Jesus wasn't up there saying, I hope that the people I died for are going to make it. You know, I think that, that the idea that he has been victorious Victorious. His people have been gra- gra- given names written before the for the foundations of the earth, and that ultimately um, none will uh, be saved without his uh, will and decree. I mean, I believe that. So, so I don't think. But from this side, this side looking at it, I don't think. You know, when I say the abstraction, no, I don't believe anyone loses their salvation. Have I met people in the midst of what I hope to be a Christian journey? who are clearly evincing at the moment a loss of some something, if not their salvation, certainly hope or, or uh, piety or Christian um, uh, fervency or faith, you know, yes. So what do I say to these people in the midst of that journey? I, I don't say you have lost your salvation. I remind them that their salvation had been secured in Christ and given to them um, by faith if they or not if, but, but that, that's the, the system. And so, so again, I'm not going to argue that there are people who are getting baptized that aren't saved. And there are people who aren't saved who get baptized. I mean, St. Decimus is the, always the, you know, the thief on the cross, you know, he's always the, the outlier. He wasn't baptized, or at least not baptized as a Christian. And yet, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise by faith. So, but practically speaking, what do I know is that, the only hope that people have is can believing in their heart, confessing with their mouth, you know, as Paul says in Romans 10, uh, that faith in Christ will save and that baptism is not a, a, a work, but the secure, the, the physical securing of the promise that, that Jesus gave us this is Romans six death, like his life, like his. And so, I mean, in answer to your question, then no, I don't think anyone who is a genuine believer will be lose their salvation. But my question is how do you inspire encourage and foment genuine belief it's not by pointing people back to their works but by pointing people to what jesus has done on their behalf which is exactly what infant baptism in particular uh, signifies is that remember no matter how far away you were before you were even could speak you were given to the lord remember that there's no link to which you can run that you cannot be you know that jesus hasn't run for i mean there's all sorts of ways to preach this without saying well check your heart, brother. Like, you know, I mean, are you, have you, is Jesus really the king of your life? You know, it's like, well, um, I hope so. And I endeavor that to be, but not for his sake, but for my neighbors. 
And I think that's again. That, I don't know if I'm making sense. Um, sure. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I you're making, you're, I, making, you're making very Lutheran sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, good. Well, that makes okay. that makes sense. Then. That's, uh, <laughs> it's good. It's it's, it's I, okay. So I I would I would agree in large part with much much of that. And I also would tell people to look back to the baptism. I would tell believers to look back to the baptism for trust. But if I am sitting in front of a person who is renouncing his faith. Who says I, you know, an ex-evangelical or someone who's, you know, Jonathan Merritt, uh, for example, I'm not going to say, "Hey, it's a done deal. You're in. You know, you are in because the baptism by which you're baptized has promises attached to it that mean that, you know, ultimately it's not a, it's not done." I'm going to say, "You need to repent." Yeah, like uh, we you, say you need, every you need, Sunday, right? Yeah, I mean, you need, you need yeah. to trust in Jesus because right now you are you are re- renouncing Jesus, and and the, and the words of Christ are very clear with regard to what happens to those who do that and die. Yes. Um, well, I would. So, so this is where so but I, I wouldn't want to say trust your baptism <laughs> at this point. Well, I no, say, I agree with that. I, I agree say, with that. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that, and that's why in the moment, that's why I'm saying the abstraction because what you could say at that point, you know, what could be thrown back at, at someone who believes in um, uh, the perseverance of the saints, you say, well, you know, whether I'm renouncing my faith or not at this moment, you know, I'm either chosen or unchosen. So therefore, maybe I'm just going through a spell. I mean, that could be like your petulant, you know, 19 year old ex-evangelical talking to you in your in your room. And I think um, what I would say is exactly what you would say at this point. It's like, well, we don't really know uh, what what the end result of all this is, but we do know what is happening right now, which is that you are rejecting uh, God, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and in an immortal peril. So your baptism signifies the reversal of these things, but at the moment you seem to be rejecting it, you know, not remembering it. Uh, you are um, mocking it, in, in fact, you know, and so there's a conversation to be had that doesn't take away the efficacy of baptism or the importance of it, but certainly doesn't allow for it to be simply a sort of a voodoo ritual, which is what some people, you know, ex opere operato, like it's just this thing done to you, and then therefore it's, it's a, um, and that's when it also becomes an abstraction. You know, on either end of the spectrum, baptism becomes unhelpful. If it's something done in the beginning that secures everything forever, well, then it, you lose some of your, it loses any of its its ongoing importance. It's just like, well, that happened. And so I guess that's just where we are. And so the ups and downs of life, the ins and outs, the, the periods of belief and unbelief all become detached from the promise. And then if it happens at the end, well, then it just becomes, uh, I mean, if it, if it happens only on account of your will, sorry, on the other end of it, well, then your will is has the vagaries uh, just as just as clearly, you know, some days you're you have strong, some days you aren't. But if it becomes something that's ever present with you, which is, I think, its intent, then it becomes, um, it becomes something that you remember on a daily basis, not out of a sense of obligation but gratitude like you on a daily basis the death of christ i mean this is what the episcopal church lost is that when you were baptized you know everyone would talk about the baptism they forgot that they were baptized into the death of christ not just into his loving embrace like you know they were baptized into the death that we brought about because of our sins back to acts 2 you who crucified christ you know, brought about this death, which yes, you are now baptized into it, but it's not a death that, you know, what does Paul say in chapter six? 
how can you have died to sin? You know, let sin reign. You know, you who have died, you know, can no longer let sin. Well, what is the sin? It's not the sin necessarily just of, of action, but of unbelief. So you who've been, you know, this is where you would preach this baptism back to your person sitting in your office. You know, how can you say there's no God? How can you say that there's no heaven and hell? Like you have been baptized into the death of God's own son for you, for your sake. And again, I don't, I don't, this is where I, I've been wrestling my whole life and maybe have become more Lutheran in, with respect, um, you know, Garrett Ferdy being the guide on this when he had wrote a book called Theology is for Proclamation, because he got, like in my doctoral work, I wrote a lot about this, the, the sort of what he called the systematic problem, because there's a way that we can systematize a lot of these um, theological questions so that they make sense in our, in our respective systems. But where the real test of the, uh, of the, um, the, where the rubber hits the road, as it were, is does it actually preach? Like, does it force you to, to proclaim to sinners the law and then to raise them to new life by faith? And so whether it's baptism or, the, or communion or um, heaven, hell, free will, whatever it is, if your theology is allowing you to um, lose a evocative sense of need for the sake of the lost, well, then it's wrong. You know, if it's like, well, clearly these people are in and these people are out or these people are out and these people are in, which is not your problem, Matt, but I'm just saying in, in general. Or if it leaves you either detached from the, the sake of the lost or a lack of compulsion to preach, to actually proclaim what God has done to save, well, then it's somehow deficient. And I think when we get into these discussions about a lot of these theological discussions, um, that's, for me, the determining characteristic, because I agree theoretically with the doctrines of grace, like I said. And I also agree theoretically with a lot of the Lutheran understandings of we've talked about this, like the, the consubstantiation, like what, what all of these various ideas, and yet in the hands of an actual evangelist, um, or, or that they can, they can all be held very coldly, you know, and sort of dogmatically, or they can be the embers that, that stoke the flame of, of uh, evangelistic passion. And so uh, that's where, for me, on the, both sides of this question, I have friends who are, who are Presbyterians and Lutherans and, and in the middle Anglicans who, um, who I liked having these conversations with, but fundamentally realized that, um, that they're all in service of bringing the lost sheep back into the fold. And so you know, I think the conversation that you're going to have in your office is probably a little different than the one I would have. But I think that the the confidence to have the conversation is based in the same promise that is secured by the sacrament of baptism administered as early as possible and as to as many people as we can, um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then we'll figure it out the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely... I definitely think that the, the Lutheran emphasis on the external promise of Christ is absolutely necessary. I think it's something that on the, some of the, some of the Puritans forgot and, uh, and uh, our modern day fruit checkers forget. Um, what do you look to for assurance? It's not, it's, it's not how, how am I feeling today or how, what am I doing right today? It's, it's, it's what did Christ promise me uh, today? And, and then, and that's always true, whether you, however you feel about it. So that's, that's always where I'd want to go for assurance, not in anything that's being, being done or produced in you. But at the same time, you know, I, just, I just can't, the reason, the reason I have a really hard time with, with the idea that baptism necessarily every single time produces a new heart, a new mind, and also faith, is that you, then you cannot have a single person, not a single person who's been baptized ever in the whole course of history ever going to hell. 
because that would mean that God has begun a good work in someone that didn't, and he didn't bring it to fruition. He, 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 he gave someone, he poured his grace on someone and then um, either just like took hands off and said, Hey, on, you're on your own now. I hope you make it to the end. Or because uh, for some other sovereign purpose, just decided to, uh, to, drop them. <laughs> and I, I just, I just can't, I, I can't see God doing that. So for that reason, I, I, I have to think our Presbyterian friends are right when it comes to, to, to what it means to baptize a baby or what's happening when you baptize a baby, that there, there, that if there is this, this spiritual, actual spiritual regeneration, like the, the John three thing happening in the heart necessarily tied to baptism, then we have a real problem with God's grace being poured out and then extinguished in people's hearts yeah i would agree with that i mean i think that's in part why i'm not a lutheran i mean yeah. I, i'm not i i couldn't bring myself to fully believe that i mean i'm i mean I, I guess in a certain sense i kind of hope they're right you know was it was it um who wrote death on a friday afternoon about the difference between hope and 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 prayer anyway the point is i mean i don't know if it's 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 I don't think it's unchristian to hope that everyone will be saved. Um, I know some people, but it, but it certainly doesn't seem biblical to assume or to expect. Mm, I mean, that right. seems, um, but, but so I agree with you. And I think, you know, in my own life, part of the discussion around baptism as an minister of it, uh, as the officiant of the services has been to question, um, you know, maybe a youthful cavalier attitude I had towards um, admittance to the sacrament as it were, for those very reasons, because, now, I have to say that that I, I have a wider birth when it comes to children than I do, for instance, like marriage, although marriage, interestingly, is not a sacrament in our tradition. But nevertheless, because, you know, you have sort of uh, the hope for a, a child versus, um, you know, at any rate, I'm getting far afield where I, where I want to agree with you and something that's developing. And I think even in the ACNA, we, we are, we're watching a sort of recalibration is the question of the relationship of church membership and church discipline. We like the Presbyterians to say the, the covenantal membership, you know, into the, into the family, like who actually, what are we doing when we baptize people into the membership of our church? Um, and what responsibilities do we have and do they have? I mean, interestingly enough, if you look at the ACNA baptism service, I don't know if you've done one recently, it has an entirely new sections about the rights and roles of godparents, you know, the expectation uh, explicitly in the service that the child will learn the creeds, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the catechism be presented to the bishop, you know, when these things are learned. I mean, there's much more emphasis on sort of the responsibility of the church, not simply to baptize, but to actually raise the child in the fear and admonition that that baptism requires. And so, you know, this is a longer conversation that we'll continue to have, but I think that, you know, we are living, as we've said before, in quite an interesting time, whereas the, as the foundations of uh, sort of Christendom, Western civilization are shaken, um, if not removed in some areas, then as it were, the metaphysical narrative framework that baptism represented, which was a given, you know, God above and hell below sort of idea that allowed for people to to kind of um, just check off the list of their normative lives to getting baptized is now being brought into extreme question, not just by the Baptist, but by the culture itself, that we will be required to um, help, as it were, resacralize the world. And I would argue that one of the best ways we have is to just stick with the tools Jesus has given us uh, with his two sacraments and continue to administer them as young 
as we can and as often as we can in the confidence that by his spirit, people will actually be uh, brought to new life and faith. That's my, so, and I know you would, I know you'd agree with that, even as grumpy and as curmudgeonly as you are. Uh, get, get off my lawn. Get off my, get out of my baptism <laughs> font, you kids. <laughs> well, repent and be baptized, y'all. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going or suggest a future topic for us, please be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh